1941, Adolf Hitler astonished the world by invading what, to some degree, had been Germany's ally, Joseph Stalin's communist Russia. Now, this turn of events prompted the Soviet Union and their natural enemies in the West to form perhaps the most unlikeliest of alliances. Both parties understood that their cooperation was going to be necessary to stop Nazi aggression. On the eve of Germany's invasion, it is is told that Winston Churchill uh, said this, If Hitler invaded hell, I would make at least a favorable reference of the devil in the House of Commons. In other words, he was saying that he would ally with anyone to stop a madman like Hitler. For, as the old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This is something like what we're finding here in Matthew chapter 22, the passage that we're going to be in. You may have already seen it in your bulletin. Perhaps you already turned there in your Bibles. Um, Our passage that comes from this this, uh, chapter, uh, in this passage we have two groups who were natural enemies of each other. They'd be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were both religious orders within first century Judaism, and yet they had, though they were enemies, they had one common enemy that in some ways brought them together, and that was, of course, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was the threat to both of them, and so both of them, you can find right here in this, in this one chapter, both of them hard at work trying to stump Jesus with questions that would perhaps bring down his ministry through public humiliation. If he has gathered a following by his teaching and by his, his, uh, his, his healing and the things he's been doing, perhaps we can publicly embarrass him in such a way that, that maybe people would, would question whether they want to follow him anymore or not. So, so some of the questions that we find here are, are questions like, Like this. Oh, there it goes. Now it goes. It jumps. Oh, all right. Hold on. Am I getting help in the booth or am I clicking? It's both. We don't want to be at at odds with each other. So I'm going to try to click. If it doesn't work, then I'll rely on you. Okay, Kareem? All right. Questions like this. Look at this question here that they posed to him in, in chapter 22, beginning in verse 23. That same day, that is the same day back from verse 15, when the Pharisees had met together and plotted how to trap Jesus. So the Pharisees have already tried their hand. Now the Sadducees are going to give it a go themselves. That same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. They posed this question. Teacher, Moses said, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children, so his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Corrine, I'm going to let you click, okay? I'm just going to put this down because I don't want the distraction. So she knows where to, where to hit the, the advance on the slides there. So that's the type of question that they were asking Jesus to try to stump him. Now, the practice of leveret marriage that they're referring to comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, where Moses writes that a, a, a brother is obliged to marry uh, his brother's widow in order to beget children. And the idea was, is, is by this union, the bloodline would continue, the name would continue, and the inheritance in Israel would continue. But their question is framed in such a way to, to, as to try to trip Jesus up. That's what's in, 
their hearts, that's what they're desiring to do. Because after all, they don't even believe in resurrection. And so they're, they're positing this scenario that would, that would demonstrate the folly of Jesus' teaching in his perspective. And, and really what they're doing is trying to present a scenario that seems irreconcilable to us if indeed resurrection is something that were a real thing. But look how Jesus responds beginning there in verse 29. Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures. Now that's quite a, a challenge to, to people like the Sadducees. They were quite proud of their knowledge of the Torah, which of course is the first five books of the Old Testament there. They knew it inside and out. And yet, though they cherished the first five books of the Old Testament, they rejected much of the rest of the Old Testament. And it raises an issue that I want to look at together here this morning. Last week I noted that if that the scriptures, if we call them God-breathed, it almost begs the question, well, which scriptures are we talking about? Because even in the time of Jesus, there are questions of whether, um, which scriptures are we talking about? You don't know the scriptures. Well, they, they accept some and reject some others. So it's a question that is worth talking about. Last week, we talked about how revelation is personal, meaning God himself is revealing himself to the world. It's not just some distant deity who's revealing his will that we would submit. No, God doesn't just reveal his will that we would submit. God reveals himself that we would have fellowship with him. So revelation is personal. It is also historical. All personal relationships have, have a history, at times of interaction through words and deeds and experiences. And so revelation from a personal God is by nature historical. Thirdly, it is incarnational. God himself has not just spoken into his creation, he has stepped into his creation through the person of his son. And lastly, we noted last week that it is scriptural, that these, these events, these moments, the words and deeds of God, the very, the very history of God himself entering into his creation have been inscribed and passed down to us. But it raises the next point here on the screen. If Revelation is those four things, we also hold that it is canonical. And if that is a word you've never heard before, we're going to take a moment to define it. The word canon, don't think, you know, something that blasts, you know, bad guys on the battlefield. That, that's, that has an extra N. We're talking about a different type of canon, one that comes from the Greek word kanon, which means rule or standard. And by the way, the root of that word is the word that means read, like a straight uh, piece of, of wood or piece of a vegetation, something that is straight and points in one direction. It has distinct boundary lines. It keeps things straight. And that's the idea contained in, behind this word, canon. Back in 2012, Disney, you might recall, famously uh, acquired Lucasfilm. Uh, George Lucas and his group responsible for the Star Wars franchise. So, some Star Wars fans, you know, were excited about this. Others have been groaning for the last 10 years because in that time, Disney has gone on to create all sorts of stories and characters that have become official canon of Star Wars. Star Wars canon, meaning it's not just fan fiction where fans of Star Wars have created their own stories and they're, they're delightful stories and they're entertaining, but they, don't, they aren't really officially part of the real you know, Star Wars universe. Now, this is the things that Disney is, is putting out are officially incorporated into the Star Wars universe and, and sanctioned as that way. So thinking about canon along these lines, when we talk about the canon of Scripture, what we mean is a list or a group of books that are officially recognized as Scripture, and thus they're set apart from other books. 
And that issue, as you can imagine, was important even in Jesus' day. You detect it right here in our passage. The, the, the Sadducees are a religious order that cling to some uh, collections of books from what we deem the Old Testament, but reject some others. So what was relevant in Jesus' day continues to be relevant in our day and in every day. If, if there are scriptures, which ones are canon? Which ones belong in our Bibles? If Revelation is personal and historical and incarnational and scriptural, there must be a, determina a determination of which is canonical. Now, if you were to take your Bible... If you have one, feel free. You don't have to do this, but you're welcome to. Flip to the very beginning of your Bible, and all of our English Bibles, after a few pages of copyright information and maybe where you can write a little note to someone you're giving it to, um, you'll find one of these, which is a table of contents. And maybe you access that uh, frequently to try to find the book of the Bible you're looking for. Not all of us have memorized where every book is all the time. So sometimes we need these table of contents, and they're very helpful. And if you look at your Bible, if you have one like mine, you'll note that there are 39 books in the Old Testament. And these are the ones that Protestants affirm as canonical. And we affirm that these have been canonical even at the time of Jesus. Jesus himself referred to this Hebrew canon of scriptures in Luke 24, in verse 44. It's that same passage we referred last week where Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus. He comes alongside of some disciples who are trying to understand all the recent events in Jerusalem of him dying and then and was buried. And then these reports that they're hearing that he was raised from the dead. And they're trying to make sense of it all. And we're told in that passage that Jesus explained from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Look what he says here in verse 44. When I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Did you catch that? He's referring to the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the third division of the Hebrew Bible is the writings. But, but when he says Psalms, he's referring to the writings because in the Hebrew Bible, the Psalms begin the writings. And so when Jesus says a few verses prior, all the scriptures, this is what he's referring to. He's referring to the law, the prophets, and the writings. And these are the 39, and I'm gonna have you advance, advance a few slides there, Corrine, because we, we wanted to bold, oh, there we go, right there. These are the 39 books that we have today, although Christians uh, organize them a little bit differently than, than perhaps uh, the, the, the Hebrew uh, rendering would, would have them. For example, we divide Samuel and Kings and Chronicles into two books instead of just one. Um, also, the Hebrew Bible treats the minor prophets as a single book. So the, the 12 minor prophets are treated in one volume, and they're even ordered a little differently than we do. But other than that, it's essentially the same, the same Bible. The same Bible that Jesus had is the same one that you and I have today. The one that he knew, and the one that he accepted, and the one that he referred to as Scripture is the one that you and I have in our Bibles here this morning. Now, up to the time of Jesus, these scriptures have been passed down from generation to generation through what is called oral transmission, which is not the same as you might have heard the phrase oral tradition. There's a difference between transmission and tradition. Oral tradition, at least in the context of you know, Jesus' day, 
refers to um, those schools of thought that had arisen over time around a particular interpretation of a text. So you have a text, and the text says something, and then there is authoritative teaching on the text to to tell the people what it means. And over time, that interpretation developed a whole tradition. And so there's a whole tradition of interpretation that is passed down. That is oral tradition. And Jesus was dealing with that in the Gospels. You can see it as you're reading the Gospels. When Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees with certain issues, he, he responds to them in, in, in how he says basically, you know, like in Mark 7, 8, you're ignoring God's law and you're substituting your own tradition. In other words, your own view of what the meaning and application of the law actually is. They, they took their own their own interpretation of the text and put it as equal to the text and in some cases greater than the text. It says the same thing in Matthew chapter 15. Why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? They had come to equate their traditions with the scriptures. That's oral tradition, but we're not talking about that this morning. We're talking about the process by which um, the facts and details of God's revelation are faithfully transmitted By mouth, from generation to generation, that is oral transmission. And you might be sitting there thinking, like a good, you know, 21st century American person, doesn't that sound a little unreliable? I mean, you know the old telephone game, right? Pastor Jeff and I at camp did our, took our turn at the telephone game with our small group that we had. And we had a group of uh, junior high uh, students, I think eighth graders, rising eighth graders, and we played the little telephone game. You know, there was like 30 of them in the circle, and we, we told a message to the one on the left, and it went all the way around, and, and as you can imagine, the message was not even close to what it started out as. And we did some investigating. We started going backwards in time and trying to identify where the changes occurred. And so as we kind of navigated our way back, we found out it didn't take more than three kids to mess up the message. And so you're probably sitting there thinking, I, I know exactly what that's like. I've, I know what it's like to tell something to someone and they forget it. Or someone tells me something, I forget it. If I, don't write, if I personally don't write something down, when I hear it, it's gone. So I, I, this is just a, a loving, you know, cautionary note to you. If you come to me 30 seconds before the worship service begins, I will not remember what you say. Don't take it personally. You know, you're welcome to come to me then, but don't take it personally if I forget. Because I, I, my brain just cannot hold it all. I can't do it. And so you're like me, you're wondering, isn't oral transmission an unreliable way to pass information from one generation to the next? And the answer is no, it's not. Now, and here's why. First of all, you and I might rely on written texts to preserve truth. And actually, we don't even rely on written texts anymore, do we? We, we store all of our truth in the cloud, don't we? So if you need to know something, where do you go? You don't go to, to a book, do you? Well, let's just Google it. By the way, is there not just inherent danger with that, uh, where we relegate all truth to a private company that wants to dominate the world with evil? I don't know. It just seems like something's wrong about that. So maybe we need to be careful about where we go to for all of our truth. But... <laughs> But it's hard for us as, as Americans in the 21st century in this digital age where no, truth is contained in books or in the cloud, it's hard of us to wrap our minds around the fact that the ancients relied not on books and not on the internet, they relied on memory and recollection. 
for thousands of years. This is how knowledge was transmitted from one generation to the next. And that's because people, the vast majority of people throughout history, could neither read nor write. And so this is how truth is transmitted. Jesus himself stepped into a, a oral culture. To our knowledge, Jesus never wrote a single thing except pot, maybe he wrote something in the sand one time. And by the way, that passage in your Bibles from John where Jesus is said to write in the sand, there's doubt that that was even in the original text. And by the way, we'll be talking about that next week. How do we know what, what texts are accurate and which ones aren't? Which ones do we go with? That textual criticism is our theme for next week. So if, if you're interested in this, in this dive down into the world of, of, the, of how we got the Bible and how we can trust the Bible, then you're going to be really excited next week. And by the way, if you're bored by this, you might as well just not even come next week because we're going to get even deeper next week. I'll give you a free pass. <laughs> Don't take me up on it, though. Come, come next week, please. Jesus stepped into an, an oral culture. He didn't write a thing. He didn't dictate what he had to say to his followers. What did he do? Well, as a master order, he, he used the, the teaching conventions of his day. He, he spoke in parables, and he used proverbs, and he used short, memorable wisdom sayings, things that his followers could easily remember and recall and later record. And so it makes perfect sense that, that, that the truth of, of the people of his day could be passed from, from person to person from generation to generation, because they valued and utilized memory and recollection. But, but more importantly is this. When answering the question of, is oral transmission reliable? Yes, it's reliable when we remember that knowledge is transferred orally for, throughout, throughout history. But more importantly, because of this, God's people have always understood revelation to be personal and historical. God, if God himself has actually spoken and acted in space and time, accuracy in recalling what he has said and done is of, is of most critical importance. Remember, the, the scriptures in the Old Testament are not just some sort of collection of philosophical truisms. You know, some wise sayings that have been just kind of passed down. No, the, the, the scriptures are the historical record of what God has said and done in space and in time to reveal himself to save his people. In that context, the historicity, the accuracy is of premium importance and value. Because if you lose the facts, you lose the revelation. If you lose the history, you lose the salvation. Historicity and accuracy, therefore, have always been of utmost importance, especially to a people transmitting truth orally from one generation to the next. So despite our unease with the manner in which it came to Jesus, we can at least rest in this, that Jesus himself affirmed the Old Testament that you and I have in our Bibles as the established canon of divinely inspired scriptures. And frankly, all the other stuff aside, the fact that Jesus affirmed it is enough for me. If Jesus affirms the Old Testament to be the scriptures, the 39 books that you and I have, the law, the prophets, and the writings. If that is scripture to him, it's scripture to me. But that's the Old Testament. And it begs the question, well, what about the new? Because as you know, the New Testament was recorded and transmitted and canonized long after, well, not long 
it began very shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus and ascension of Jesus. But the, the process by which the, the New Testament canon was established was long after Jesus was gone. And so how do we get the New Testament? We know about the Old Testament. What about the New? Well, there are a number of contributing factors that led to the formation of the New Testament canon. The first was a guy named Marcion. You may have heard of Marcion. He was a, a, a second century heretic. Uh, he was, he was a, a Christian and an evangelist. And he, he was a, a minister. As By the way, all heretics in the early church were those things. You know, even, even Arius, the, the great heretic that, that we, we think about when we think of the Council of Nicaea in the third century, um, even, you know, he, was a, he was a preacher, but he was wrong. And the church had to correct where he was wrong. And so you have this guy, Marcion, in the second century, and here was his central belief. He believed that the God of the Old Testament was a sort of angry, vengeful, you know, God, and he was at odds with Jesus in the New Testament, you know, Jesus, Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, they were not, they were opposites of each other. They were opposed to each other even. And so as he was teaching this message, he also began to formulate his own, his own canon of edited scriptures. So the Marcionite canon is basically a, a, a stripped down version of Luke and some of Paul's letters. In fact, he taught that Paul was the only true apostle. Okay? And so uh, in his attempt to scrub Judaism from any Christian writings, he produced his own canon, which prompted the, the church to respond. So that's the first um, uh, contributing factor to the development of the New Testament canon. Here's the second one. It is the presence of other gospels that arose during the first couple of centuries and following. What we perhaps you've heard called the New Testament Apocrypha. Now, that's not to be confused with the Old Testament Apocrypha. That is another group of, of books that come from the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New. And Apocrypha comes from the Greek word that means hidden. These are those books that have been hidden away, secret books that have been revealed. And, um, and so you have the Old Testament Apocrypha, which, by the way, contain uh, quite a bit of, of very helpful historical data from the intertestamental, intertestamental period, that 400 years uh, of silence, so to speak, um, so th there's value there in, in history and the development of even some of the theology of, of God's people during that time. Um, but the Jews never viewed those apocryphal works to be canon. They were never held, and to this day were never, are never held, as equal to the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, that's never been the case in the Christian church until the 16th century when the Catholic church at the Council of Trent canonized the, the Old Testament apocrypha as as part of scripture, but they did so in response to the Protestant Reformation. So there's a whole sort of his, history there that you're welcome to dive into on your own, but, but we do not hold the, the Old Testament Apocrypha as scripture. We don't hold the New Testament Apocrypha as scripture. Some 50 or so books claiming to have apostolic origins. They're written in the second and third centuries and beyond under the names of apostles as if they were part of inspired scripture. We don't, we don't hold those as as canon, and the early church didn't hold those as, as canon, but that was one of the contributing factors to the church taking action to determine what her canon was. You know, that you had these books that were popping up, and, and what was the goal of them? Well, they were trying to fill in gaps. You know, we have, the, have Jesus' birth, we have a couple, you know, stories of his childhood, um, but then we're suddenly, we're jumping to his, his beginning of ministry, and there's, you know, there's some 20-some years of his life that we don't know a thing about. And so people began trying to fill in the blanks. 
and, and ascribe this, these works to, to apostles as if they had some sort of authority behind them. And so you had these books popping up. What about the, the, other, uh, the other apostles? Because once you, you go through the book of Acts, you get 10, 12, 15 chapters in, and suddenly the only person they're talking about is Paul. What about the other guys? Well, there's these apocryphal works that popped up in the second and third centuries to try to uh, explain what happened to the, the missing apostles. But the most important reason these popped up is, is this. There were all sorts of heretical teachings floating around among the early church, and these apocryphal works arose to try to gain acceptance of these ideas. We can get people to buy into Gnosticism if we can produce apostolic writings that are Scripture. You see what's going on. And the church began to experience confusion. Because there was a very clear set of, of apostolic writings from the church's birth and inception. But as the Christianity spread and these other works began to be worked into the equation, clarity was needed. So that's the second factor that led to the New Testament canon. The third is this, and this is the most practical of them all. And you and I, I hope, never have to experience this in the manner that the early church had to. And it is the, the matter of persecution. Why is that practical, you might be, might be asking. Well, Christians who were ordered to burn their holy books or die had to make a very important decision. Which ones were worth dying for? Which books on your shelf are worth dying for? You know, in my office, I have a whole growing library of books, and, and, there, and many of them are tremendously valuable and helpful to me on a day-by-day -day basis. Not all of them. I do have a copy of Gary, uh, what's his name? Uh, he does the Far Side comic. Gar Gary Larson? Uh, the Chickens Are Restless? I probably wouldn't die for that one. Um, but I might die from laughter at that one, because I love that type of humor. But I'm not willing to die for those books, but am I willing to die for this one? And if that's, if that's the reality of your life, as it was for them, you better be sure you know what you're dying for. And those are the factors that led to the church bringing clarity on the, this matter. Marcion and other, other heresies, the, the rise of other apocryphal gospels, and the very practical issue of persecution. And so, in the second century, a process began of compiling lists with the vast majority of the 27 books you and I have in our Bibles already being agreed upon from the very, very beginning. And the first time that a 27-book canon was endorsed was by St. Athanasius, the, the Bishop of Alexandria, the great champion at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. You may have heard his name before, and if you haven't, you need to know his name. Arguably the most important Christian in history after Paul. In defending truth. Now, of course, the topic he was most uh, vigorously fighting against at the time of the Council of Nicaea had to do with the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Because you had a, a heretic named Arius whose, whose teaching was that Jesus was the highest of all created beings. In other words, he's less than fully God. Yeah, he's, he's, more, more, uh, he's greater than you and I, but less than the Father. And not one with the Father. He was created by the Father. And in the Council of Nicaea, led by um, uh, Athanasius, rejected that and says, no, the Scriptures clearly teach that Jesus is not the Father, but he's one with the Father, and he is, un he is uncreated but begotten of the Father. And, that, and you and I can think, the, the men of those days and the people of those days who fought for orthodoxy 
We can thank them for the, the, the truths that have been passed down to us and the right interpretation of Scripture that has been passed down to us. But here's the thing. At the time that Athanasius is fighting Arianism at the, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the issue of his 27 uh, book canon that he's endorsing wasn't even debated. It was already accepted, and, and his, his list will later be ratified at the councils of Hippo and Carthage in AD 393 and 7, respectively. And you might be asking, asking the question, well, how did the church then determine canonicity? What were the criteria by which they made these determinations? And, and the, it's threefold. The first is apostolicity. In other words, were, was the book in question written by an apostle, or was it written by a disciple, uh, an apostle's disciple in the first century? Can we ascribe apostolic uh, endorsement and authorship to the work? That's the first test of canonicity for the New Testament. The second is this, orthodoxy. Are the teachings consistent with, with the others? You know, if God, if God is the author of truth and God is revealing his truth to the world and his truth is taking shape in, in the form of inspired scriptures, we can be certain that, that one scripture will not contradict the other. And so you might have something that, that may, you know, by, okay, let me say this. Um, did you know that our first Corinthians was not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church? Well, where did that one go? It, it fails the test of canonicity. It, yeah, it, may, it was written by Paul, and I'm sure it was orthodox, but thirdly, was it Catholic? I don't mean Roman Catholic. I mean, was it accepted by a wide variety of churches and endorsed and, and received from an early point in time? Has the church everywhere embraced this as a genuine work of, the, of an apostle and an orthodox in nature and inspired by God? And that first letter that Paul wrote does not fit that, letter, does not fit that standard. It wasn't Catholic. So, ap, ap, uh, um, Apostolicity, orthodoxy, and Catholicity were the three criteria in which the early church was gauging canonicity. And so with that in mind, I want to make this really important note. And if you get nothing else from this whole little section here on the New Testament, please get this. Canonization was not the process of a group of people deter, um, ascribing or giving inspiration status to a group of books. Rather, it was a work of the church to identify the true scriptures from the false. And there's a difference between those two. Look what F.F. F. Bruce says. He's one of the great um, evangelical scholars of the last century. He was a champion of the historical reliability of the scriptures. Listen to what he says here. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary... The church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired. Church councils did not impose something new upon the Christian communities, but codified what was already the general practice of those communities. That is a big difference. Because if you listen to the, the, the opposing voices out there today who want to try to shed doubt in your mind and in your heart about what was going on in the early church, they would have, have you think that a group of, of, a small group of powerful people got together and they determined these are the books that reinforce 
our perspective and our opinion, and we're going to force it upon the Christian communities, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna mandate that they accept these books and not those books. By the way, that is the whole premise of Dan Brown's uh, novels. If you read any of Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons or any of those books, they're, they're very entertaining books. They're fun to read, whatever. But that's the premise behind his history, that the Council of Nicaea was all about a group of power brokers trying to determine which books reinforce our beliefs, which books reinforce that Jesus was divine, and we're going to push those ones at the, at the edge of a sword and hide all the real history that's out there. That's not what was happening in the councils. No, they were not determining or imposing anything. They were merely codifying what was already the general practice throughout the whole church. Look at what Bruce Metzger writes, a Bible translator, textual critic. I believe he died in 2007, a great loss to uh, evangelical biblical scholarship. Uh, some of the finest works I have on that subject matter are, on my, are in my office. Um, he says this, the canon was not the result of a series of contests involving church politics. It is a list of authoritative books more than it is an authoritative list of books. Let me read that again. It is a list of authoritative books more than it is an authoritative list of books. These documents didn't derive their authority from being selected. Each one was authoritative before anyone gathered them together. All the early ecumenical church councils did was merely ratify the lists that the Christian church had already deemed inspired and authoritative. And so, there you have the Holy Bible. 66 canonical books of inspired revelation from God to man. Remembered, preserved, recorded, and transmitted from generation to generation. If you and I believe that God wants to be known, and we believe that God is able to be known, then it's not much of a stretch to believe also that he has ensured that he can be knowable to every generation. Now, in closing, let's go back to our passage in Matthew 22. <laughs> back to Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees. Look again at his accusation against them, and notice how it is not just singular, but it is a twofold accusation. He does say, as I read a, moment, a few moments ago, at the beginning of verse 29, your mistake is that you don't know the Scriptures. And he is right. They don't know the Scriptures because they have rejected a large majority of the Scriptures in favor of their own selections. They had rejected the, the totality of what God had said and done in history. And don't think for a second that their refusal to receive all of the scriptures isn't directly related to their refusal to receive Jesus. And that is a cautionary uh, example for your life and for mine today. If you refuse to accept the scriptures, you will absolutely refuse to accept Jesus in your life. If you accept just the bits and pieces that you deem are important or necessary or inspired and you reject the rest and, there, and there's a lot of people calling themselves Christians today who are, who are taking upon themselves the burden and the responsibility to decide what is true in here and what is not. Oh, well, that, that thing back there, it says that and, you know, that was just something for those people and, and it, was, it was the patriarchy and, you know, we, we don't have to listen to that because, after all, Jesus, Jesus says way back here that God is love. God is love. And so we, we begin to pick and choose what is inspired, what is true, what is relevant, 
what was for them versus what is for me. And if you start playing that game, you will reject Jesus every time. And I want nothing to do with that type of Christianity. Don't think for a second that the Sadducees' refusal to accept all of the Old Testament canon did not directly connect to their refusal to accept all of Jesus. And by the way, if we were to continue reading through this verse, which we're not going to because we don't have the time, Jesus' response as it continues to them will go on to point out that even within the scriptures they do accept as, as, as their canon, even in there we see hints and in, in, uh, uh, pointers to the fact that God is the God of the living and not of the dead. That even, even within the Torah, you can find the resurrection implied. It's a brilliant stroke of genius from Jesus on behalf of, uh, 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 in response to what the Sadducees had to say. And we're told that the Sadducees went away silent. <laughs> we don't know that he converted them, but we sure know that he shut their mouths. Genius. But the first part is, you don't know the scriptures, but he continues at the second part of that verse and he says this. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. He didn't just say about the power of God, which would have been true, by the way. If they have rejected the, the you know, key passages in the Old Testament that talk about God's power to raise the dead, like Isaiah 29, 16 and Daniel 12, 2, of course they're not going to know about the power of God. Absolutely. But he doesn't say you don't know about the power of God. He says you don't know the power of God, which tells me this. There's a direct correlation between knowing and believing the Scriptures and experiencing their power. You can never hope to know the, the power of God apart from knowing and accepting and embracing and living out his scriptures. Last week, we were in 2 Timothy, and, and Paul wrote this. He says, God uses his word to prepare and to equip his people to do every good work. How does he prepare and equip you? By his word. The power of his word. It's your power as a Christian. And those who accept and receive his word, will then know the power of his word to make us wise unto salvation. And so it's critically important for you and me today, not just to take time like we've done this morning. I hope this was not just tedious, academic sort of like nonsense to you. I hope this was helpful to you. I hope it taught you something. But more importantly, I hope it strengthened and deepened your convictions in God's word. It's important that not only we know how we got God's word, how the Bible came to us. It didn't just fall out of the sky. It, there was a process, and it took many centuries. And you and I are the recipients of this great gift from people of old. And we need to know how we got it and why that matters. But it's not just important to know how we got the Scriptures. We have to know the Scriptures. And we have to receive the Scriptures. And we have to cherish the Scriptures and understand the Scriptures so that we can know the power and the wisdom and the salvation that God is offering from himself to you and to me. Not just know the verses or books that we like, but all of his word from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is inspired and all of it is his revelation from himself to you and to me. As John Wesley famously said, I want to know one thing. <laughs> Which, by the way, don't take that literally to mean he literally only wants to know one thing. 
Read Wesley for 30 seconds and you'll realize that he knows far more than you will ever know. And probably the person to your left and right combined. A brilliant mind. A scholar of scholars. And yet he didn't live in the stuffy heights of academia. He went and preached to the coal miners who needed to hear the gospel. And that's our our spiritual father. That's where Methodism comes from. People like that who were brilliant and learned, but who left the robes and the collars behind and ministered to the people who needed it most. So he's not saying literally, I want to know one thing. But listen to the spirit of what he's saying. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came down from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. And I have it. And here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri. Let me be a man of one book. And not just any book the good book, God's book. And I pray that we would be a church, we've been a church, but we'll continue to be a church of one book. Let us pray. Lord, we're grateful for the men and women in generations before us whom you use to faithfully transmit and preserve and teach and proclaim the truth of God to the world. Every single person in this room who is a follower of Jesus owes their faith to another person who came before them in some form or fashion. In some way or another, another human person was involved in every single one of our experiences of of the new birth. And we thank you, Lord, for the generations past who have worked and even gave their lives that we could sit here this morning and and have your word at our fingertips. And there are others all around the world today who who would give anything just to have access to a fraction of what we have at our disposal. Lord, help us to not be complacent or ungrateful for a second, but to use every moment that we have to commit to it, to, to spend time immersing ourselves in the truth of your word. And I know there's places where it's confusing in, in names that we can't pronounce and in, in cities that no longer exist. And, and it's, it's difficult and at times feels dry. Lord, we're all, we're all frail when it comes to embracing and understanding all of your word. But thank you that you've given us your spirit who superintends the faithful reading and proclamation of your word. The same one who inspired it is the one who comes alongside of us in the reading and preaching of it today. And we have one another, and we have scholars who produce great works, and we have all these aids at our disposal. There's no excuse for being ignorant of the scriptures that make us wise unto salvation. So Lord, we repent of our failures to avail ourselves of the great resources of your word, and we commit ourselves this morning to becoming students afresh and committing our lives to its truth and all it has to say about everything that we need to know about you and ourselves and what you want us to be and do in this world. Lord, your word will equip us and empower us for for service and ministry and for life. Help us to believe that and live that out today, not just in lip service, but with our time 
and with our priorities and with our investments and our resources. Lord, may we be committed to, to be a church full of people of one book that truly and ultimately matters. And Lord, we know that you honor that and you will bless that and you will be glorified in that. And that is our heart's desire here today, to lift up your word that, you, that we might glorify your name. May it be so, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.